You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. We're in John chapter 4 is where we're going to be today, and we're uh, themed this section of the Gospel of John. Uh, We're kicking off a brand new chapter in John chapter 4, so we finished up chapter 3. We're in John chapter 4. So um, this message series has been titled Following Jesus Off the Grid, and so today what we're going to see is Jesus actually himself goes off the grid to reach people. And so we're going to see and look at the life of Jesus Christ and how he went to great lengths to share and to show the love of God uh, to others. So um, I want to start with the story and tell you how somebody uh, reached out to me and made a huge impact in my life. Um, Just for a moment, I'm just curious, how many of you uh, have somebody that you could think of that really made a major impact in your life spiritually? Would you raise your hand real quick? Yeah. So, you know, and think about perhaps maybe how, what kind of length they went to to help reach you. Um, I just got a note from one of my uh, former youth pastors. Uh, He was celebrating um, uh, 50 years in ministry, incredible man, and uh, been a mentor to me. And he wrote me a note this week, and it really encouraged me. Uh, I had... um, gave a video and, and, uh, and shout out to him when they were celebrating kind of his role in ministry. And that's been my vision. I want to serve a very, very long time. Uh, one church, one life, one wife. That's my plan. And uh, I want to do that and do it really well. So, um, but anyway, I think back on my story of how I was the prodigal son guy. I was the guy who had a good family and then ran away into kind of irreligious licentious living and did kind of whatever I wanted. How many of you would say you're the prodigal son? You kind of ran away from God, did your own thing, raise your hand. Welcome to the club, okay? And then how many of you guys would say you've just been good your whole life? Just raise your hand. Okay, there we go. Uh, Well, uh, so what we're going to learn today is we're going to learn about how God goes to great lengths to reach people. And then Mark DeMoz was the man who went to great lengths to reach me. He always uh, went to church camp. I got in tons of trouble at church camp, and he kept inviting me, and parents would say, why are you inviting that troublemaker? You shouldn't invite him. And he would say, God loves him too, you know? And so uh, he kept doing that, and year after year, and it was my senior summer, and uh, I was graduating uh, from, from high school at the time, and I was, um, you know, I told God, God, you know, if you want to do something great in my life, then do something soon, because uh, I had plans at that point in time to move with my girlfriend, go live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, go to college, live with her, and did not plan on being a Christian, did not plan on going to church, did not plan any of that. I kind of had a life without God plan. Wanted to make a lot of money, wanted to be in the business world, wanted to go to school with my girlfriend. That's what I thought I was going to do. So long story short, I make this deal with God quietly behind the scenes, and I say, you know, my parents are Christians. I got friends that are now acting like they're Christians. Uh, I think they're genuinely Christians if Jesus is real. Uh, Their lives have been changed. I'm lo- I lost some friends to Christianity at the po- that point in time. They didn't want to come party and hang out anymore. They just wanted to go, like, be 
you know, good Christian people. I was like, man. And so I say, God, if you want to do something real in my life, then do it now. And sure enough, I get a phone call. Mark DeMoz reaches out to me, says, Ryan, we're going up to Colorado. I know you like to, you know, mountain bike. I know you like to kayak, dirt bike, and rock climb and all that. We're going to do a bunch of that stuff. Would you go? And I said, Mark, you know I'm not a good guy. You know, like, these are all, like, good Christian kids. Like, I'm probably not a good guy to go. And he said, I want you to come. So I show up at the church parking lot. I kid you not, I'm in the car with my girlfriend, and I had an uneasiness in my heart that day. I knew that something wasn't right with me. Like I wasn't fulfilled, wasn't satisfied in life. I put out my cigarette, I got on the church bus, and I'm like that kid that you envision rolling up with all these wonderful Christian kids, and then smoke pours out of the car, and out comes Ryan. Like, hey, hold the bus, here I come. And I get on the bus, and they're like, you could hear a collective, oh, man. <laughs> you know, and I shuffle my butt back to the back of the bus. It's a huge Greyhound bus. And all of a sudden, I started thinking about, I don't know why, it was like this most depressive ride. I started driving up to the mountains, and I think we crossed the state line of Arkansas, and we're headed to Colorado, and this deep heaviness sat over me. And I literally said to myself, I hate my life. I hate my life. Um, And I didn't know why. And I'll tell you why I said that now that I can look back. It's because I didn't know Jesus Christ at that point in time. I had an emptiness inside of me that I was trying to fill with everything and even other, uh, my girlfriend and the different things that I was doing. And it brought me no deep level satisfaction. Go up there, get there, meet these great people, met one gentleman by the name of Seth Richardson. Um, He's our guide, and he says, you know, hey, over the next 10 days, we're going to go rock climbing into the uh, these mountains, and then we're going to go uh, a five, six-day backpacking trip through the collegiate peaks. We're going to summit a 14,000-foot peak, and I'm thinking, man, this is awesome, you know, and then we're going to go whitewater rafting on class three and four whitewater, and I'm thinking, man, this is incredible, but what I found most impressive was this, is Seth, every few minutes, he was like breathing and speaking Bible, like truth, but not in a dorky way. Like, don't you know John 3, 16? Like, he wasn't saying that. He was just like breathing truth. And I talked to him, and he talked about how Jesus Christ had changed his life. And I thought, he has something I don't have that I do want. And so sure enough, uh, we get out there, and we're in, in the back country. And I've, some of you have heard my story before, but he sent us out on solos. And so we went out, and we camped without a tent, um, all by ourselves. He broke up the group and told everybody to basically go hike uh, hundreds and hundreds of yards out, scattered us out across a mountain. I mean, probably a big liability. Mountain lion, bear could come along and eat us up. Nobody would know. So sure enough, I'm out there and I look up at the stars and I see the stars and I'm overwhelmed. And I said this out loud to God, I hate my life. And I said, how come I, how come I don't have life like those other people do? Because I did go to church, Lord. I, I did, I did, in fact, Lord, I even got baptized. But I've told you before, I got baptized because I want to date this real pretty Christian girl. And she told me, well, I don't date anybody unless they're Christian. And I said, Well, watch this, I'm about to get baptized. And then I got baptized, came to her, and she said, You're a fake. And I said, Yeah, you're right. So, so I had played the game of church. 
But on that mountainside that night, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and everything changed. I remember looking up to the stars and I said, Lord, how come I don't have life? And he said, a Bible verse came to my mind. And God might as well spoke to me audibly. I didn't hear an audible voice, but here's what I heard. Bible verse came to my mind. I didn't even know this biblical passage. And it said this, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In that moment, I knew what it meant to be a Christian. What it meant to be a Christian was that I needed to lose my life and stop trying to do it on my terms and trust Jesus Christ. Carry Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel kind of thing. You have to let it go and trust Jesus Christ. So that's what I did. And I think back, and I think it was Mark DeMoss who reached out to me time and time again to keep bringing me in, keep inviting me in, keep reaching out to me, and then my life forever changed. I went back and everything changed. Um, I reconciled with my family. I reconciled with my friends. I had to drop old friends that were really bad influences on me. I had to create new friends. I found myself alone a lot on Friday nights praying and asking God to help me and give me new friends. And uh, I was discipled and mentored by uh, youth pastors and pastors in my life, truly changed. And then I met the love of my wife, the love of my wife. Look at that. <laughs> the love of my life. She is my wife. And uh, we did ministry and it is happily ever after, but it is still hard. And so here's what I want to say to you is I want to say to you, um, Jesus Christ goes to great lengths to reach you but he uses people. And so today what we're going to learn is we're going to learn that Jesus is going to go off the grid to reach people, and so do we. We need to go off the grid to reach people. Let's read in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 29. The apostle uh, John is just kind of uh, reminding everybody kind of what's been happening. He's starting a new chapter here, uh, we we see, um, and it says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, um, there have been baptisms going on. You remember John the Baptist, he's the preacher, um, the man who's uh, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near and that he believe and be baptized. Um, That's going on. But Jesus's crowds are growing too, bigger than John's crowds. And John said, he must increase, I must decrease. And so uh, the apostle John is now writing to help us catch up with what's going on. I do find it interesting that the apostle John kind of makes a little footnote here, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. I thought about that. Why wouldn't Jesus be doing the baptisms? Well, how about this? Imagine if Jesus did the baptisms, and then somebody would be like, who were you baptized by? I was baptized by Peter. Oh, that ain't nothing. I was baptized by Jesus. Uh, I think Jesus did this to kind of set a precedence that there's not power in the person doing the baptism. It's a, something that you decide to do between you and God. And uh, Jesus wasn't playing favorites, so he had his disciples do the baptisms, And uh, it was a baptism by immersion. So if you ever decide, you know what, I'm going public with my faith, it's an outward symbol of an inward reality that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this is a picture. This is just catching us up. Uh, The apostle John is clarifying this is what's been happening. There was all these baptisms going on. Jesus's ministry is public. It's it's moving forward. And we're going to see that Jesus is about to go off the grid. 
Uh, he'd been in Jerusalem. Remember, he cleansed the temple. Uh, he'd ha- hung out with a Jewish theologian, had a little nick at nighttime, just hung out with Nicodemus. And then he uh, is, is now we see him is that he's moving forward here and uh, he's moving out of Jerusalem, out of Judea. Verse three, it says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Um, Samaria was a place that nobody wanted to go, especially the Jews. They definitely did not like Samaria. If you took a direct route from Jerusalem, Judea, and traveled north, you would hit Samaria. But uh, most of the people did not like to go there. It was the bad place to go. So they would, out, they would make, take the long route around it to avoid it. You ever been to those kinds of places before? You're like, I know it's a direct route to get there, but that's such a bad town. I'm making a major detour. It's like, I'm sorry if you're from West Texas, but when I drive through (laughs) West Texas and those oil towns, those are terrible places to stay, by the way, because they gouge the prices of the hotels. They've got drugs, prostitutes, I mean, one night, this was not in the message plan, but I feel the Holy Spirit says, go do it. So I'm going to do it. <laughs> one night, I, we stop in West Texas, and literally, it is so bad. My wife's like, let's get a, a, you know, a motel, hotel, whatever. So I'm like, all right, baby. So it's a bad West Texas town. The door doesn't even lock. I go tell the guy. He's like, sorry, that's the price. I'm like, the door doesn't lock. And so I act like everything's cool. I see drug deals going on in the parking lot while I'm putting my kids to bed. And there's a room, and there's a nasty old lazy boy. And so I put the kids to bed, act like everything's cool, tell my wife, don't worry, I've got it taken care of. She's like, you have to fix this. The door won't lock. I'm like, the guy does not care. This is it. She says, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to guard all night long. I went to bed with a lazy, on the lazy boy facing the door with my friend Smith and Weston sitting right here all night long. <laughs> Literally slept like that. And I'm like, that was it. This is the kind of place nobody wants to go, Samaria. And, but look what it says Jesus says. And he, uh, John says this about Jesus, and he had to pass through Samaria. So why? Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, doing a little Old Testament history here. Verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Um, The Bible mentions geographical places because the Bible is true. It's filled with history, uh, geography, archaeology, like these places really exist. This whole thing called Christianity is not a myth. It's not a legend. You can go visit these places when you go to the Holy Land, it is incredible. How many of you ever been to Jerusalem or the Holy Land? Raise your hand. Yeah, a couple, not many. Um, but I want to challenge you to realize that we're not reading just a storyline. We're reading actual historical history of how everything came to be. So Jesus gets to Samaria. He's near a field. There's this wonderful well. And if you're ever in the back country and there's water, that's where you go. Recently, I was on a quail hunt, out quail hunting, went on a massive hike, just miles and miles in. There's water. I get my dog watered up. I rest. I eat lunch. And all of a sudden, I hear out of nowhere, hey, Ryan. I'm like, what is that noise? 
And sure enough, randomly, my buddy bumps into me. I'm like, how does this happen? In the middle of nowhere, miles and miles away, I randomly meet this buddy of mine, and it was just an incredible time. Jesus is there, but he's not there, and he's not going to be surprised by his visitor. He knows exactly what's going on because he is omniscient. He knows everything. And so he had actually planned this. He's there. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. And it's about the sixth hour. That's not 6 p.m. And it's not 6 a.m. It's actually about 12 p.m. Uh, the calendar started, or the time frame started 6 a.m. was the beginning of the morning. The sixth hour would have made it about 12 o'clock. So it's hot. It's middle of the day. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And it's very interesting. Why would she come at 12 o'clock? Well, she's got a colorful past, to say the least. She wanted to come at a time when nobody else would be there. I don't know if you've ever tried to hide something and you don't want somebody to see the car parked out front, but she was avoiding people. The normal time to go to the well would be about probably mid-morning or late afternoon, evening. So she's, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water she said to, uh, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He said this not as being bossy. Uh, he said this because he's literally exhausted. Oftentimes, um, I think uh, in liberal Christianity, they make very, very much of the humanity of Jesus Christ and very little of the deity of Jesus Christ. And I think if there is an error within conservative historical Christianity, sometimes we make way too much of the deity of Jesus Christ and not enough of the humanity. Jesus is, is human. He's God. He is the God-man. Um, so Jesus is exhausted. He's thirsty. He says, give me a drink, like, I don't know, impersonation, but give me a drink. And he didn't have anything to get a drink. He needed a drink. Uh, verse 8, little uh, commentary, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A couple of interesting things that are happening in the text here. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. You definitely don't talk to them. You definitely don't go buy food from them, but Jesus does because he's, he's not racist. Jesus isn't, uh, uh, he's, he's, he crosses all sorts of cultural barriers. Jesus loves people, all people. Here we go. Verse 9, it says this, it says, uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then here's the apostle John says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So there's a lot going on here. What's going on is that um, we automatically pick up. It doesn't matter if you know history. If you can read the Bible, you see something's wrong between Jews and Samaritans. So um, how many of you have ever um, seen racism and you just disgust you? Raise your hand. Okay, all of us. I've seen it. I came from Arkansas. There's racist people there. There's racist people here in, in Arizona. I hate racism. Jesus does too. Immediately, it says this. The Samaritan, Jesus is uh, not a racist. Jesus does, is a Jew. Jews hated Samaritans. Uh, he's crossing gender boundaries. He's talking to a woman. Jews didn't talk to women. Um, and then he's crossing a religious boundary of the, the Jewish. The Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. Why is that? Here's why. Because 
centuries past, there was this deep bitterness between the Jews and the Samaritans um, because a long, long time ago in their past, when Jesus starts this conversation, there had been hundreds of years of hostility building up. Uh, the Assyrian Empire came into Israel, conquered the northern kingdom, took all the bright and the best people into Babylon, put them into captivity, and then imported all sorts of educated other people, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, into Israel. They, in, they intermingled, they intermarried, they brought all their paganism, they brought all their anti um, um, uh, uh, Yahweh ideas, if you will, and it was syncretistic faith. So you have these people, these half-breeds that were semi-Jewish, but now they've intermingled and intermarried into all these other uh, ethnicities and uh, religious ideas. And so there's this major schism between the Jews and the Samaritans. So they have their own form of worship, they have their own beliefs, the Samaritans only accepted about five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, the Jews embraced all of our Old Testament, and they had a clearer knowledge of who God was because they read their Bible. Uh, the Samaritans didn't, they kind of mixed in all of their, uh, their ideas with pagan uh, theology, if you will, or ideas. It's very much like you go to New Sedona. You ask somebody if they're a Christian, they say yes. You ought to ask questions like, what do you mean by that? Everybody's got a different version of it. Uh, you go into Roman Catholic uh, uh, cultures in North America, or then you go down into Mexico, they've integrated it in. It's very syncretistic. It's a mixture between paganism and the, their Catholic faith. Uh, and you have forms of Christianity in that, Right. You have forms of Christianity. This is why there's so many different denominations. They've taken other ideas and woven it into. And so there is a riff, if you will, between the Samaritan and the Jew. The woman knows that. She's like, I can't believe this. What is Jesus doing? Jesus has gone off the grid to reach people. He went through Samaria. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given it you living water. All of a sudden, he's introducing this idea about living water. She's probably like, what? What are you talking about, living water? Continuing on in verse uh, 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water. That's why he asked for her to give him a drink. Uh, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I don't know if she's amused by Jesus' statement. I don't know if this is genuine or sincere, but it is the question. Where do you get this living water? Suppose I do believe in this living water. Where do you get it? Verse 12, she asked another question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She had an understanding of uh, um, the uh, patriarchal system and understanding kind of faith roots and uh, history of, of her faith at some level. And he, she says this, he gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus chimes in verse 13 and Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. She's thinking, yeah, that's probably true. That makes sense. You drink, you get hydrated, but then you get thirsty again. Verse 14, he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
that, pro- that probably sounded pretty good to her, like maybe she wouldn't have to come back out there. Um, verse uh, continuing on, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that he alone can answer and satisfy the deepest levels of an individual. We all thirst and hunger for something. And we look to other things and other people and other places to satisfy the deepest levels of who we are. And what Jesus is saying, I've got something that will satisfy you at your deepest level. So since I did it uh, last week, I'm not, I promise I'm not going to do this every week because um, I'm not starting a music ministry, but I'm very curious again, if you know these songs, here it is. And I am terrible. We should cut the tape on this. Okay, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Come on. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison's doors, set those captive free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well. There you go. We'll stop right there. (laughs) Jesus is talking about a river of life that satisfies you get thirsty in Phoenix. You get dehydrated. You know you've lived here. You live on water. There is no Phoenix without the canals. There is no Phoenix without water. How many times do people call you from out of say, how do y'all live out there? Is there enough water out there? Are you guys okay? Like, yeah, we got water. We got deep aquifers, just so you know. You need water to live. And what is happening here, Jesus is saying, I've got a, 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 a water source that is far greater than you could ever get here. The woman said, verse 15, uh, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's something going on behind the scenes. There's a deep level of shame. She's not happy with perhaps who she is. You're about to find out why she doesn't want to go there anymore. She comes out at noon when nobody comes. Um, That's not revealed into the text as to why. Many of you probably already know the story. But look, Jesus is just going to get to it. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Tell him to come here. The woman said, I, I, I don't have a husband. Basically, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, she's avoiding Jesus. Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right in saying I have no husband for actually you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Immediately, she knows this is not just another man. This is either a prophet, this could be the Messiah, like he knew everything. And he, she was totally exposed. This is why she shows up at midday noon when nobody else is there. Because even, in, even for Samaritans to be um, married and divorced, married and divorced, married and divorced, married and divorced, and living with another man, that was considered adultery to the Jews and the Samaritans. And it was not a good thing. 
So therefore, she's ostracized. Therefore, she's perhaps persecuted, at least physically or verbally. And she wants nobody to know what she's doing. And Jesus completely revealed it to her. So verse 19, it says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, meaning like something's not normal. Like you are, this is extraordinary. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I'm like reading this. I'm like, what? Like, I thought we were talking about husbands. I thought we were talking about our personal life. I thought we were talking about this, how this lady's a train wreck. But now she's talking about places of worship. Here's why. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you point out what's going wrong and you get personal real quick with them and all of a sudden they're like, uh, so uh, what are you doing this weekend? What do you got going on? Like, change the subject. This is exactly what this woman is doing. She does not want to get into her personal life. She's incredibly ashamed and embarrassed about it. And she's asking about where to worship. Moving on in verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know because they had a very limited knowledge of the, of the scriptures. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. When, then Jesus says, we worship with what we know for the salvation is from the Jews. Uh, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is a reference, I think, to the work of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit will permanently indwell the life of the believer. Um, what this means for us as Christians is that you don't just worship God on Sunday. You can worship God every day, no matter if you're in the car, no matter if you're at work, no matter if you're hiking or biking or camping or out at an event. Your life is worship. Worship is not just singing songs. That's one part of worship. That's your gratitude because of your worship. Worship is a life. And Jesus is saying, there's, there's a time coming Basically, when the Spirit of God will indwell you, you become this now, this living temple. And this woman's thinking, this is totally different than I thought. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. She had some knowledge about uh, Jesus Christ and the promise of fulfillment, at least from Genesis, perhaps, is where she's getting her ideas from about there would be a Messiah but she had a limited understanding about this. The Jews had far more knowledge about the Messiah. John adds in there, he who is called Christ. And then continuing on, when he comes, she says, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. So she's perhaps still putting Jesus in the category of prophet, not necessarily buying into the idea of a full Messiah. But then this is what Jesus does. Watch this in verse 26. The very first time Jesus reveals his full deity is to this woman from Samaria. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What he's saying is, I'm the Messiah. I find it incredible. I find it wonderful. I find it in super encouraging that the first time Jesus reveals his deity clear as day is to a woman from Samaria. Jesus crosses 
racial boundaries in doing this. He crosses gender boundaries. He crosses religious boundaries. And he says, I'm the one. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. So they're interrupted. This powerful moment. This woman, all her personal life has been revealed. Um, She knows now this is the Messiah. And all of a sudden, these disciples come back. Where were they? They were out in Samaria buying lunch, picking up some subways, coming back to have lunch with Jesus. But remember this. Jesus, John wrote it like this. John said he had to go to Samaria. He had a divine appointment, a divine mission. And by the way, when you think about this, in the beginning, what we just read, it said that he had left Judea, was on his way to Samaria, and there, there he's moving. And what you see is this divine mission pattern, because later what we'll see in the book of Acts, when Jesus commands his disciples, he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the what? Earth. So Jesus is going off the grid to make sure that everybody knows that you have an invitation to experience living water. You can't live without water, and you really can't live without Jesus. The best life is the Christian life. You can fill your life with anything or anyone And it will never, ever satisfy you. Talk to the wealthiest, most successful people and ask them, how happy are you? How satisfied are you? What satisfies you is getting in connection when you creation, get in connection with your creator. John, the apostle, started out and said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and was God. And in him, he was in the beginning, he was there. Your creator is Jesus. This woman is coming to a place to go, I want to get in line with this. Look what happens. These disciples show up, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman because Jews weren't supposed to talk to women. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They just stood there like, holy smokes, what's going on? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. Wait a second, why'd she leave her water jar? She left her water jar because she was thrilled. She now had the living water. She didn't want the physical water at that point in time. She probably didn't think about it. You ever been so excited about Jesus Christ? You look like an idiot. You ever been there before? You just pray out loud. You're like, hallelujah. Somebody's like, whoa, it's kind of weird. Um, This woman's excited. She's on fire right now, on fire in her faith. She leaves the water jar, went away into town and and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Jesus accepted her where she was at. That's the message of Christianity. You don't clean up your life and get to Jesus. You come to Jesus right the way you are and he will receive you right the way you are. He won't let you live the life you were living. He calls you to a better life. And she says, can this be the Christ? And later we know in verse 39, we'll read it next week, but 
She did become a believer in Jesus Christ. And in fact, she went out and she shared her testimony with all sorts of people. And many people came to faith in Christ because of the woman's testimony. So what does this mean for us? This is what it means for us. We as a church need to go off the grid to reach people. I want to share with you five quick things that you can do in your life to make sure we get the message of mercy out. Number one, super simple, but I want to challenge you to meet new people. I know that sounds simple, and you think, how could that connect? Well, there are lots of folks moving into the North Valley. If you haven't seen the construction sites with all the new development, it's everywhere. We as a church need to be greeting people, meeting people, getting to know people, going out of our way to make sure people feel connected. Let this, be a, let this church be a church where they can be welcome, and you be that inviter. You're, you be the one. Connect with your neighbors. The Bible says the greatest commandments are to love God and to love your, help me out, neighbor. Love your neighbor. Um, here at church, I want to challenge you. Use the courtyard. Use the, the time where we uh, eat meals together to meet people. Let me tell you what not to say. Don't go up to somebody and say, hey, that person looks new. I'll go meet them and say, hey, you new here? And then they say, no, I've been here five years. Thanks for noticing me. Because that happens. Here's what you say. You go, hey, my name is Ryan. How long you been coming? Oh, I've been coming for five years. Oh, cool. Glad you're here. What service do you go to? <laughs> I'm really getting into this. What service do you go to? I go, I, go, I go to the first service, but today I'm at the second service. Oh, that's cool. Let's have lunch. I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? You just need to meet people. Ladies and gentlemen, the church is a body. There's arms and legs and everybody needs to know each other. Get to know each other. Like the old cheers. You want to go where everybody knows? Okay. Number two, share your faith. I want to challenge you to share your faith. Um, 80% of people say they would have spiritual conversations if somebody took the time to talk with them. 80% of people would have spiritual conversations if somebody took the time to talk to them. Here's my message. The entire world is filled with Samaritans, non-Jews, okay? I, I'm a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan. And we've got weird ideas oftentimes if we don't know the Bible that's all syncretistic about who Jesus is, that's woven into Christian theology that is totally not biblical. And if you have conversations with people and share your faith, you're making a difference. You're helping fulfill the Great Commission. You're helping be a witness. The Apostle Peter said, you need to be prepared to give a reason for your faith all the time. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, in our country, when you vote on certain issues or policies or ideas, back it up and tell them why. Tell them why you believe what you believe. Tell them why you value what you value. If the Bible is the authority of your life, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you live different and share your faith in a loving way. Share the, your faith in truth and in, help me out, yeah, truth and love, truth and grace, exactly. Clear as mud, right? Number three, here we go. I want to challenge you to invite others to join you. I want to encourage you just inviting others constantly inviting others. If it's uh, to get to know people, 
We need to be a very relational church. This is, um, I've said it before, the church has started up. The first 10 years were the startup phase. The second 10 years is the build-up phase. We're in the building phase. Not of buildings, perhaps, but now of ministries and missions and the congregation. We're finishing the last and the largest building on our campus. I'm grateful for that. It's the last and largest existing buildings. We will build more buildings. But, but we need to be constantly inviting people to journey with us, the, the spiritual life. I want to challenge you to invite others to join you. When was the last time you invited somebody to church? How many, time, how many times a year would you want to invite somebody to church? Once? Twice? Three times? Monthly? Quarterly? I want to challenge you to invite people once a month. Make it a habit. I'm going to invite people once a month to join me. And don't invite them and say, meet me at church. And then you don't tell them what service. Um, You say, meet me at the Ramada. When you get there, you'll see the new here, start here. You just walk in and I'll be looking for you. And then you meet them and say, hey, I'm glad you're here. Invite them to your community group. Maybe some of you got a community group and you know somebody's disconnected. Invite them to that. Maybe you love to go have a cool little hobby. Invite them into that. This culture is deeply isolated and disconnected right now. Amen? And you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. And you are to shine and to share and show the love of Jesus Christ. So I want to challenge you to make this a habit. Number four, I challenge you to go on a mission trip. Make it your goal that every year, once a year, you go on a mission trip. If you can't make Mexico happen, go on a mission trip. If North Valley isn't offering you a mission trip that fits your needs, go on a mission trip. Get out of your comfort zone. Realize that if we're going to reach people off the grid, we got to move beyond our local ministry base and our local context, and we need to go off the grid from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, we have a Navajo Nation trip with our men that we, we are um, organizing as well. Mexico is gearing up. It's an incredible opportunity. I want to challenge you to make it a habit to go on a mission trip every year. Number five, I challenge you to give above and beyond towards missions. Um, why do I say that? Because we have needs. We have, let me show you a picture of our Mexico mission trip. Um, this is a, a picture of uh, a number of people from our church. This year, we're sending um, 50 people, myself included. Uh, my kids, this will be their fourth house build uh, that we've been a part of. Um, we're going down to Mexico, and here's what happened. Because you guys already gave above and beyond, um, we were able to to meet uh, all the needs of scholarships. We had a number of families that needed to be scholarshiped because they didn't, uh, couldn't make it in their budget. They wanted to go, but they, weren't un- they were unable to go. And I got to say, hey, good news is our church is generous. Everybody's given. So 100% of all those scholarship needs were met because of you guys giving through the Hope Offering. So let's celebrate that. So... We've got a local ministry to run. It's called North Valley Ministry Teams. We have mission efforts going on all the time. Um, Thankfully, we've already got all our funding in place for Mexico. The whole trip's 
Uh, we're going to build a house. We're going to have an incredible time. All the scholarship needs are met. The trip is full. It's awesome. We're excited. Um, the other needs for giving, when you give above and beyond your regular giving at North Valley, here's what it's going to help fund, particularly in the area of missions. Um, one is going to be we're, we're committing to do monthly support to a new church plant in Scotland. Um, we have a family in our church that's moving to Scotland this summer, and we're going to commission them as a church, and then we're going to financially support them every month until they, re- until they return back to the U.S., or it could be the rest of their life over in Scotland. So when you give above and beyond to the Hope Offering, that's the kind of projects that we get to do. Um, another one that I'm real excited about is Fathers in the Field. We just launched a ministry with Fathers in the Field, and we're um, equipping and sending out men um, who are in our church, who love Jesus and love his church, and have a biblical vision for what masculinity looks like, and then mentors a fatherless boy. Um, we did a signing ceremony just the other day, and uh, we have a number of other men already in the, in the queue. Um, we are reaching out to fatherless boys within our church and within the community. So get the word out. And when you give above and beyond, we make sure that every father, mentor, and boy have everything they could ever imagine in need to make sure that single mom is not pressured for finances, for equipment, tools, and resources, but the church has covered it. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Can we celebrate that just for a moment? So I love making a difference. You know, when I go to bed at night, I want to just say, Lord, I just, I want to make a difference in life. And I know you do too. There's something in you. You were designed to shine. You were designed to make a difference. And the best investment you can ever make is into the lives of people. And together we can do something great. When you serve, when you give, it makes a big difference. Let me close in prayer and then uh, we'll continue in our service. Lord Jesus, you are king. You are the creator. You're the one who's satisfied. There is no one else and nothing else that will truly satisfy as you will. You said, get to work. You told us to go share and show the love of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that all the gifts received and all the time spent would do a great deal of good so people would know and follow you. And in that, Lord, we'll find refreshment and blessing and purpose in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said Amen. Hey, I don't want us to miss the moment. I charge you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and go off the grid to reach people. But I want you to think about this for you. I want you to think about the incredible mercy that Jesus Christ extended to this woman at the well and how Jesus Christ extends that mercy to you. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.